welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our latest edition of Arbitral Insights, the podcast series where we interview some of the most interesting, inspirational, and let's face it, stellar people in the world of international arbitration. And today I'm delighted to welcome an incredible guest, Donny Sertani. Hello, Donny. Hi, Gautam. Hi, everyone. Now, Donny has an incredible backstory. And I'll just sort of introduce Donnie a little bit for our listeners who don't know Donnie. Donnie used to be a management accountant, and that was his first trade, so to speak. Then, as I would say, he saw the light and uh, he became a lawyer, a very fine one at that. That's where I first got to know Donnie, because Donnie was just across the road from me in London. He was based at Herbert Smith Freehills, where he was a partner and where he was based for, I think, Donny, 15 years. That's right. And I was just across the road at Reed Smith. We got to know each other at that time. Then shortly, well, quite recently, Donny went to the bar, was was called to the bar. Uh, He is a member of Crown Office Chambers, a very prominent set of chambers with great expertise in a number of areas, including international arbitration and commercial law. And he moved his family to Canada. So he's based in the great city of Toronto, in the state of Ontario, uh, a place that I love. It's a very diverse city, Donny, as you know, and has forged an incredible reputation over the years. And I love in this podcast series talking to all sorts of practitioners, but from all around the globe. But Donnie is someone who I've always regarded as one of the great new generation arbitrators. He's one who will be in the absolute Premier League before too long and someone who I'm incredibly fond of. So, Donnie, I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Likewise. Thanks so much. You're too kind. Pleasure. So, Donnie, I was mentioning there in my introduction that you started out life as a as an accountant. So yep. uh, tell us about what led to you first choosing accountancy as a discipline and then what then flickered your mind to turn towards the law? Sure. So if we sort of dial back, I, I grew up in Sri Lanka as actually part of a small ethnic minority there my family's originally from the India-Pakistan border and left at partition. And so second generation Sri Lankan, but don't belong to either of the major ethnic groups and so don't really speak the local languages that well. And so I went to an English school and really I was a maths and science kid in school, but quite argumentative. And so at some point the idea seemed to have been established that it would be a good idea for me to be a lawyer, not least so I could spare my family my tongue. The challenge, of course, uh, for me, not being able to speak the local languages was that studying law in Sri Lanka was not really an option. 
And I looked at opportunities to travel overseas at the end of my secondary school, but it was not all that straightforward. I'd had an offer to study at the LSE, but at the time didn't have really the way to take it up, so I deferred it. And so looking at what I could do with sort of maths and science, studying in English, the best option really for me there was to become an accountant. Uh, There were a few business schools that trained people in the UK Management Accounting Institute exams. And so that's what I did. And I did it quite reluctantly, I have to say. As a 16, 17-year-old, I found it difficult to motivate myself to think of myself as an accountant. And so I grew my hair out long and got a part-time job at an advertising agency, trying to rebel in the slightly lame ways in which I thought I could. But then eventually reconciled myself to what I was doing and landed myself, very luckily, an excellent job with the Shell Group, who had just come back into Sri Lanka as part of a privatization of the LPG sector. And so that is sort of where my finance career, uh, as short as it was, really got going. It was a fantastic place to work, facing all kinds of really interesting challenges as a multinational company coming into a sort of recently privatized former government concern and all of the interesting dynamics that come with that. Thank you. And, you know, I would love to have seen you with long hair, Donny. I mean, uh, <laughs> As opposed to no you, hair. <laughs> you know, I'm certainly in my advancing years now, but uh, I once upon a time had longer hair, not as long probably as yours, but uh, let's swap photos at some point. So then tell us about then what encouraged you to then choose the law? Because I know that in your practice now as counsel and as an arbitrator and as a mediator, you obviously have the benefit, which not many people have, of being able to utilise your financial skills, your financial assessment skills, in terms of the legal issues. Um, And so assessing quantum and technical things, which is an incredibly valuable set of skills. But what led you then to want to go into the law? Because you mentioned that point, which I love, about uh, you being quite argumentative and everything, and how that would be quite a good thing for you. But tell us about sort of what then triggered the interest and how you ended up in London and at one of the world's finest firms, Herbert Smith Freehills. Sure. Uh, So as I mentioned, I had this offer to study law at the LSE after I finished secondary school and I deferred it and had really expected it would just lapse. I'd, I'd never get to use it. But then it was at my, I think it was my first performance review, actually, at Shell. My boss perhaps made the mistake of asking me where I'd like to be in five years' time. I said to him very honestly, look, if I'm being completely open... There is this offer to study in London. I don't know how I'd be able to use it, but if there was some way I could do it, then in five years' time, I would have left you and I would have started a career in law. And incredibly generously, he said, well, let's see if we can make that happen. We made inquiries and they found a graduate level role for me with the Shell Treasury Centre in London working part-time 20 hours a week during term, which is what my visa would allow, and full-time in the holidays, which is what funded my law degree. And so I came out 
landed myself at the LSE, which was just across Waterloo Bridge from the Shell Centre. And I have to say, I think if it was any other university campus, I don't know logistically how I would have made it happen. But I do feel incredibly lucky that the eyes of many needles seem to have aligned just right to allow me to sort of go through and do it. And so I got the chance then in 2000 to come out to London and to do what I'd been wanting to do for sort of about four or five years by that point. I didn't really know what it was all about. I didn't know a huge amount about the profession, but the LSE was a great entry point for me, both because it's in the city, you really feel like the world of commerce is sort of happening around you. And then you have access to all of these outstanding teachers and peers who uh, can help sort of guide you through the morass that is the sort of the world of trying to find a graduate role in law. And so through that, I sort of started to explore what the different options might be for me. Given my background, I, I knew pretty early on that I was interested in commercial and business law. So I started to look into the different opportunities that might be available to me. I was quite tempted, if I'm being honest, by a career at the bar even then. I did look into it. But the reality was, at that time, there weren't very many chambers that offered stipends for pupillages. And the ones that did really didn't have a whole lot of security that came with it. And so I figured out pretty early on that it would be much better for me to look at an opportunity where I would have the certainty of a work permit and the certainty of income with a solicitor's firm. As I looked around, I was struck by Herbert Smith as a firm that both focused on litigation work and that focused on advocacy. And so I had this sort of notion in my mind that that would be it, that would be what would work for me. Again, perhaps slightly naively, the idea that a second-year law student would say, aha, that one firm, that's where I'm going to go, maybe maybe a, a bit naive. But I, again, I guess I, I was lucky it worked out. Well, it certainly did work out um, and because you, you did really, really well at Herbert Smith Freehills, a firm where uh, I know I know a number of people still. So it's a very, very fine firm. Return to a couple of themes you mentioned there a bit later on, because I'd like to explore those with you, particularly in the context of uh, diversity, equality and inclusion, which I think one of your points there did span across. And I'll return to it, like I say. But, you know, you mentioned uh, your then boss at Shell as being someone who encouraged you, who inspired you to pursue your interest. And I'm always fascinated in these podcasts to ask our guests about people in the course of their careers uh, who have inspired them and who've mentored them. And I dare say, Donnie, you've had a number of people who've been very pivotal in shaping who you are and what you continue to be. So I wonder whether you could just share with us some thoughts uh, about some of those people who've inspired and mentored you and who continue to do so, in fact. Sure. I know the question is framed in the professional sense, but I it would probably be remiss of me not to actually start, and you might say this is a little cliched, 
but my sort of my family were and continue to be very strong influences my generation was the first in my family to go to university and that very much came from a sense of commitment to education from my parents and my mum in particular and my my mum's quite a private person so she won't forgive me if i say too much over here but i think it's enough to say that growing up it was very clear that she w- was facing some really challenging circumstances in raising us but we were immediately struck by the stoicism and the selflessness and the determination to make the best of whatever situation came along and i think that got instilled in us sort of over a number of years and that has been for me a real source of strength uh, that i've sort of gone back to at various points in my adult life and so th- from there professionally you're quite right i at, at shell i should probably call out sort of two names in particular the the country chairman of shell sri lanka at the time was actually a malaysian chap uh, called idris jala uh, he's now quite a sort of prominent figure in malaysia but at the time as i say he'd sort of come in to as one of a handful of expatriates to a company that until recently had been a government owned corporation recently privatized international shareholders with their expectations a local workforce that was somewhat skeptical of the involvement of all these johnny come latelys and people like me were the locally hired private sector folk who sat in between the expats and the incumbent team and i i was very much influenced by idris in a number of ways both in the approach he took he found himself in sometimes quite ethically ambiguous or challenging situations but always found a way to deal with them in a way that didn't compromise his own values and that i think again i found very inspiring and useful because the truth is that you know we could take an approach where we simply walk away from any situation as soon as it becomes challenging but as lawyers as you know sometimes we don't have that option and so learning how to deal with problematic situations while still maintaining your own standards and ethics was something that i learned from idris my immediate sort of manager the cfo at the time uh, was a chap called Gerald Cock a, a dutchman who again was just the most generous person in the in the way i've described and so i think they were sort of very strong influences on me early on i mean i i was working for them when i was 18 and 19 years old i was quite sort of impressionable and i i i learned a huge number of things both about professional work how to conduct oneself but also about culture and about what i might read and what kind of music i might listen to a, a whole range of things they were incredible guides for me into the world i was about to step into when i went off to the lse so th- th- those i think were sort of some of the really strong early influences and then when i landed up at herbert smith 
I was incredibly lucky in that it was about the time that the firm was launching its advocacy unit. And I, as a trainee, had the benefit of spending one seat in the unit. And it was there, really, that I first started working for Adam Johnson, now Mr. Justice Adam Johnson. Yes, Um, absolutely. Adam was just a great mentor to me and had been for a number of years, uh, both as a trainee, as an associate, and then later as the head of my practice group when I became a partner. Adam taught me a huge amount, both as an advocate, because I, I served as his junior on a number of cases. And I saw a lot about how to advocate fiercely for one's client while still being incredibly calm and a calming influence on others and bringing the right sort of attitude to advocacy, which is you're there to try and help the judge. If the judge feels like you're there to help them find a way through problems, you're going to win their confidence. And the, he, he was, for me, a, a huge teacher in, in that respect. And then more generally, just in terms of the life and the stresses of being in a commercial law firm, uh, as I say, he was a very calming influence and showed me that it was possible to be a successful law firm partner whilst also having at the sort of the center of your ethos a, a desire to try to do right by the people around you and to try and look after your team. As I say, I, I really benefited from uh, having him as a, a mentor throughout my Herbert Smith career. Thank you. And yes, and as you say, he's now on the High Court bench, one of that small band of solicitors who are High Court judges. Uh, mm-hmm. And let's hope that there are many more to follow in years to come. Sure. And of course, you know, uh, you know, not that we need sort of, I mean, but there's one person who I've always thought sort of set the benchmark. That was Lord Collins, of course, who yep. was also a former Herbert Smith partner, uh, who's you know, incredibly respected even now. So, you know, one of the things now that you're based in Canada with your family, your lovely wife and your two children, you obviously maintain a very international practice. Mm-hmm. You've got a foot, some would say, in a number of geographies. And I know you have a very diverse practice in a number of areas, number of countries. And you maintain a practice as counsel and arbitrator. And as I said in my introduction, you are you are one of that really new generation of arbitrators that I particularly like to see do well. Thank you. In terms of your perspective, I'd be really interested in a couple of things. Sitting as an arbitrator obviously asks a number of things of you which are different from when you're there as counsel. And you made the point a moment ago, which Adam Johnson mentioned to you, or taught you, I guess, that you're there to help the tribunal or the judge make their decision. So when you're sitting as an arbitrator, what are the sorts of things you like a counsel to be doing apart from those sorts of things? And just tell us sort of your perspectives as an arbitrator, what that's taught you when you're acting a counsel in, in you know, the next case. Sure. I think that all too often the ways in which cases can be presented can be sort of tendentious and self-serving to the point that it is difficult for the tribunal even to sort of work out what it's meant to do with the case. And that isn't necessary. 
counsel may think that they're serving their client by putting everything in a self-serving or in a slanted way. But really, counsel are more persuasive when they can identify the way through the dispute for the arbitrator. If the arbitrator can see, well, all right, these are the areas where the parties disagree, but this is a sensible pathway for me to sort of make the decisions that I need to make. And then I've got present, and at that point, on each of those issues, of course, you you should put your client's case as strongly and as vigorously as you can. But you've helped the tribunal because the tribunal then knows um, what the consequences are of each decision and how they flow from one to the next. And by doing it in that way, the tribunal really feels like, actually, that counsel is trying to help me. And that, I think, has sort of reinforced in me the sense in which when I, as you say, when I come to the next case that I've got to present the arguments, if I can start by working out that roadmap, almost working out how to make the tribunal's life as easy as possible, it must then help me in terms of fine-tuning my client's arguments so that the tribunal is as receptive to them as possible. You know, another thing I'm always interested to ask is arbitration has become, as we know, as you and I know, uh, as many people who practice in the field know, the dispute resolution mechanism of choice in international business. And it serves a very wide consumer base. Mm-hmm. But arbitration itself can be improved in a number of ways. And, I, and I'd and i be interested in just your perspectives on you know, just a few things you think could be done to improve the arbitration process so it is the best form of itself for the consumers of arbitration. Gosh, that's a nice broad one, isn't it? Well, you know, <laughs> you know, I always like to, uh, to if I can, even surprise people as fleet of foot as you, Donny. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, look, th- th- there is, you know, I-, I remember when we were starting out in our careers, we would learn about arbitration as this alternative form of resolving disputes that was less formal, more efficient, as a sort of a basis on which parties could agree ground rules so that they weren't having to deal with issues of dispute in an inefficient way. Over time, I think what we've seen is that whilst that can sometimes be the case, all too often that flexibility gets misused and you find parties perhaps playing with the lack of a rule book to try and create more inefficiency. And then you've got this whole problem that sort of flows with that of sort of due process paranoia, where tribunals then worry about, well, how do I deal with this open textured landscape in a way that's fair to both sides because really the tribunal is rightly concerned that awards shouldn't be susceptible to challenge later and i do wonder whether there isn't scope to have more of a predictable and efficient uh, set of processes that parties can fall back on so that they're not 
negotiating from first principles as often as they are. I thought that was very that was a very good point. I was just going to say. No, thank you. Yeah, I feel like that picture we had from bef- you know fr- from the older days where really the tribunal is given almost there's a degree of implicit trust that they're not there being procedurally unfair. They are just being informal and flexible so that the business community can get its disputes resolved quickly and efficiently. I think that is more than just as rule changes, though. That is a sort of a cultural shift. And actually coming to Canada and sort of getting a better sense of the landscape over here, it is interesting because I do sometimes get a sense that over here there is a bit more of that in some areas of practice. And it is it does vary over here by sector and by geography, frankly. Province by province, it can be quite different. But on the other hand, there are also those practitioners who just try to lift litigation processes and drop them into arbitration, mm. which creates its own problems. Well, it does. And I and I remember many years ago, see, this is going back probably, Donnie, to about you know, 20 years ago, I remember seeing uh, a word in, in an article I was reading, arbitigation, right. on the basis that it was exactly as you say, a mix of arbitration and litigation, where you were sort of dropping bits of everything and you'd get a bit of a hodgepodge. Right. And I remember that word. So arbitration stuck in my mind. <laughs> no, I think, no, no, those are all great points, Donnie. And, you know, one of the other things which I said I'd return to, because I think it's such an important thing, it's something which you and I, amongst others, live and breathe every day, and that's diversity, equality, and inclusion. Yep. And it's an incredibly important concept, as we all know. It's something that's being taken increasingly seriously in the law, as well as many other fields, quite rightly. It's obviously a very wide issue, diversity, equality and inclusion. And, you know, and um, it's about having opportunities. I I just wonder from your perspective, we all know it's important, but are there some thoughts that you have whereby we can make people in the arbitration community can make a tangible difference in this area? I think there must be, mustn't there? You, you, you'd hope that there is that, that, that there must be more that can be done. I mean, the, the, the thing that strikes me about the nature of what we do is that it is intensely human, you know, r- looking to resolve disputes in any part of our lives, whether commercial or otherwise. And what that inevitably means is that quite often it is subjective, both in the practice of law as counsel and also uh, from the perspective of a decision maker, a judge or an arbitrator. I mean, if it, if it wasn't, if it was completely mechanical, you wouldn't need humans to help you resolve disputes. Uh, but whether it is trying to work out what is fair or what is a sensible reading of a document or what the right balance of conveniences, or when a witness should be believed. These are all areas that our own subjective views have a huge role to play. And those subjective views come with our own culture and background attached to them. And so what that means really is that if there is a body of counsel or a body of decision makers 
that doesn't look like and doesn't have the same points of reference as the community is trying to serve, well, with the best will in the world, you're going to have a mismatch and you're not going to do right by the people that you're trying to serve. And so diversity and inclusion, both in the legal profession and amongst the decision makers, is hugely important, not just because it's right that all lawyers should have a fair shot or that all would-be arbitrators should have a fair shot, but because we're trying to serve a diverse body of users. And we mustn't forget the users who deserve a fair shot. I completely agree with you on that point. I mean, I couldn't agree more because, as we say, arbitration isn't just there as this thing that just exists. It's there for a reason. It's there for the consumers of arbitration. And the consumers of arbitration are themselves a very diverse bunch of people. And it's only right that people do have that opportunity. And, you know, that's also, and, you know, you and I have discussed this before, Donnie. This is another reason why I love it when people like you and others from a diverse background gain prominence because the arbitration should never be static in terms of the body of arbitrators who are out there. It's not just a club of of a finite number of people, quite different from that. And, And as you and I know, it has a number of manifestations. There's the pledge because we do need more female arbitrators. We don't have enough of them. Absolutely. Oh, we need more arbitrators from an ethnically diverse background because we don't have enough of them. Um, yep. and, there are, and, and frankly, we need to ensure all sorts of diversity amongst arbitrators. So, you know, I, I think you and I, I know are on the same page on this, but uh, I'm always fascinated to hear different perspectives on this. Sure. I mean, but the big challenge, of course, is how, right? How do we make a change? Because it, it, it is the case that you can't expect it to change overnight. Mm. When someone is looking to choose a legal representative, well, they want to know who's done it before. They want to know who's got the relevant experience. Um, And so that inevitably favors people who've got a degree of incumbency. And then when you're trying to choose arbitrators, you're trying to look for people who have the relevant experience, who've done it before, etc. And that also favors incumbency. So even if people don't want to treat it as a club, the big challenge is how do you start to bring in more diversity into those networks? Because the truth is that there will always be some degree of people reverting back to who they know and what they know. And so the big challenge as well, is it through mentorship? Is it through apprenticeships? Is it through finding other opportunities for people to get to know different folks, you know, things like this podcast series. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> right? And hopefully that then helps to give people a basis to start to broaden these networks. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, no I agree. And it's something that it's a work in progress. Sure. Um, it's something that we just have to do better and better and better and just keep on keeping on because, because you know, Donnie, I mean, you know, I'm older than you, as you know, but uh, when I was uh, a much younger man, 
there weren't that many. I mean, things were very different to what right. they are now in 2022. I'm glad to see the change, but more change is needed. So, but no, I mean, that's a very, very interesting topic. And look, Donnie, I know that we're running up against time. And I, I, and I always like to end off these podcasts with uh, some more lighthearted discussion. Yep. And this one's no different because you know, you're, a, you're an incredibly interesting guy, second generation, Sri Lankan, studied in the UK, worked in the UK, called as a, as a barrister in Canada and here in the UK. You've got an incredibly diverse practice. You had long hair when you were younger, which <laughs> is something I didn't know about you till this podcast. And, and I'm going to see those photographs at some point, Donnie. But I just want to ask you a few things. And so is there a particular film that you would say is your favorite film of all time? Oh, um, probably different at different times. But the one that I found that I've come back to, both from when I was a child and now that I've got kids of my own, and you'll think this is ridiculous, but it's My Fair Lady. A great film. Um, it was. Film. It was just I. I Incredibly long, but actually very easy to go back to. And maybe I'm brainwashing my kids, but they love it too. I love it. No, no, no. I love it. We're all the product of who brainwashes us, Donnie. So, right. you know, <laughs> um, let's face it. So, and uh, and have you got, I mean, of course, My Fair Lady had some incredible uh, actors in there. But, I mean, is there a standout male and female actor whose work you particularly enjoy? So I think going actually, I mean, both obviously, I mean, Audrey Hepburn and Rex Harrison were both amazing, fantastic yeah, in it. Mm. But actually, if, you, if you're asking it more broadly, and you, you might detect something of a musical theme here, <laughs> but sort of the discovery for me of Lin-Manuel Miranda mm. has uh, been a revelation. And He's obviously done all kinds of weird and wonderful things, including his role in Mary Poppins 2, which was a little bizarre. Mm. But really just his brain works differently, I think, to other people's. And he he just comes up with the, the most astounding material. Actually, his podcast, his Desert Island Discs, mm. is an excellent listen. Well, yeah, I'm sure that you and I are going to be competing on Spotify for him <laughs> in the same way that he has on this podcast. But, um, <laughs> but you know, talking about music, you mentioned music, and you know, music is one of my big passions, um, mm -hmm. and amongst other things. But uh, is there a particular sort of genre of music that you particularly enjoy? Any favorite bands or singers? And so again, try not to laugh. But <laughs> Bruce Springsteen. Oh, the boss. Just Absolutely. fantastic. I remember we, we got to see him live at the Arsenal Stadium. Mm. Gosh, when was it? 2007 or so. I mean, magical stuff. His recent exploration of his own background is also really fascinating. You know, he will call himself a fraud. He will, you know, say, I sing about working men in factories. I never did a hard day's labor in my life. Mm. And yet you've got all of these people who associate me stro so strongly with expressing what they're feeling. And he calls it a fraud. I mean, you might call it just tremendous empathy. 
you know, he didn't do, he, he may not have done that factory work, but he understood it. Mm. His performance on Broadway, where he talks a little bit about his background, shows that he may not have worked a factory himself, but he didn't exactly grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. It's just the most, he, he's a wonderfully garrulous storyteller. And it comes out when he's talking or when he's singing. Because he can relate to so many people, it feels easy to relate to him. There's a wonderful film that came out a few years ago called Blinded by the Light, which talks about this South Asian teenager in, I think it was Luton, who saw his own childhood growing up and sort of the tensions between his conservative home life and the world around him in the 70s and 80s, sort of seen through the lens of him discovering Bruce Springsteen uh-huh. on his Walkman. It's just, it just shows you how easily people can relate and how that tells a story, that music. I've got to watch that because I'm not familiar with Blind by the Light. I'm going to look that up and you watch it, it, actually. Because, you know, as I think Bruce Springsteen is someone, he's like, he's just got fans everywhere. I mean, and I just remember as a young kid, I you know, first came across him as Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Yep. And, and then Springsteen was like, I remember as a teenager, that classic song, Dancing in the Dark. I think I was about 16 or 17 when mm-hmm. it came out. And I just remember... That was just a great sort of song. It was like in many ways an anthem. So yep. it still is an anthem, but it was one of those anthems of my teenage years, dancing in the dark. And it's yep. like, you know, that classic line, you can't start a fire without a spark, you know, this gun's for hire. And that's like yep. in all sorts of things, you know, so, you know, I could talk to you about this all night as you could probably work <laughs> out. So my last question to you, and I'm mindful of time, uh, mm-hmm. but just one last question of you. And we've all been through a horrible time this last two years. Okay, the pandemic has been dreadful on so many levels, and there are so many horrible stories about many people that you and I will know who've suffered terribly. But let's assume that a time comes shortly, let's hope, when you, your wife, and your children can travel somewhere for a holiday outside of Canada. Yeah. Where would you want to go? Oh, me and if it was my choice or family? Yes. Let's say you were booking the trip for you, your wife, and we all know your wife's the boss in the family, talking about Bruce Springsteen and the boss. (laughs) But assuming you were going to book the holiday, where would you take the four of you? Well, if we could line it up with the England tour of the West Indies, (laughs) you know, just if it happened to work, Barbados, beach holiday, and the test match. Perfect. (laughs) Well, well, listen, that's a great way to end this podcast. I'm going to tell you. Um, we can all dream. Donnie, you know, Donnie, thank you so much. It's been a real privilege, a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for being so, well, just so in- enlightening in this podcast. It's been great fun and you've covered lots of important topics. So thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you in person very soon. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And yes, we will. In fact, probably more realistically, the next time we get on a plane, I'll be in your neighbourhood, so I'll look you I, up. I look forward to it, Donny. I look forward to it. There's, there's lots to catch up on. Thank you very much, Donny. Thanks. Bye-bye. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com.
to learn about the Reed-Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.